This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M. R. James. Mr. Humphreys and His Inheritance. About fifteen years ago, on a date late in August or early in September, a train drew up at Willsthorpe, a country station in eastern England. Out of it stepped, with other passengers, a rather tall and reasonably good-looking young man, carrying a handbag and some papers tied up in a packet. He was expecting to be met, one would say, from the way in which he looked about him, and he was, as obviously, expected. The station-master ran forward a step or two, and then, seeming to recollect himself, turned and beckoned to a stout and consequential person with a short round beard, who was scanning the train with some appearance of bewilderment. "'Mr. Cooper,' he called out, "'Mr. Cooper, I think this is your gentleman.' And then, to the passenger who had just alighted, "'Mr. Humphreys, sir, glad to bid you welcome to Willsthorpe. There's a cart from the hall for your luggage.' "'And here's Mr. Cooper, what I think you know.' Mr. Cooper had hurried up, and now raised his hat and shook hands. "'Very pleased, I'm sure,' he said, "'to give the echo to Mr. Palmer's kind words. "'I should have been the first to render expression to them, "'but for the face not being familiar to me, Mr. Humphreys. "'May your residence among us be marked as a red-letter day, sir.' "'Thank you very much, Mr. Cooper,' said Humphreys for your good wishes, and Mr. Palmer also. I do hope very much that this change of, uh, tenancy, which you must all regret, I am sure, will not be to the detriment of those with whom I shall be brought in contact. He stopped, feeling that the words were not fitting themselves together in the happiest way, and Mr. Cooper cut in, Oh, you may rest satisfied of that, Mr. Humphreys. I'll take it upon myself to assure you, sir, that a warm welcome awaits you on all sides. And as to any change of propriety turning out detrimental to the neighbourhood, well, your late uncle, and here Mr. Cooper also stopped, possibly in obedience to an inner monitor, possibly because Mr. Palmer, clearing his throat loudly, asked Humphreys for his ticket. The two men left the little station, and— at Humphrey's suggestion, decided to walk to Mr. Cooper's house, where luncheon was awaiting them. The relation in which these personages stood to each other can be explained in a very few lines. Humphreys had inherited, quite unexpectedly, a property from an uncle. Neither the property nor the uncle had he ever seen. He was alone in the world, a man of good ability and kindly nature whose employment in a government office for the last four or five years had not gone far to fit him for the life of a country gentleman. He was studious and rather diffident, and had few out-of-door pursuits except golf and gardening. Today he had come down for the first time to visit Willsthorpe and confer with Mr. Cooper the bailiff as to the matters which needed immediate attention. It may be asked, how this came to be his first visit. Ought he not in decency to have attended his uncle's funeral? The answer is not far to seek. He had been abroad at the time of the death, 
and his address had not been at once procurable. So he had put off coming to Woolsthorpe till he heard that all things were ready for him. And now we find him arrived at Mr. Cooper's comfortable house, facing the parsonage, and having just shaken hands with the smiling Mrs. and Miss Cooper. During the minutes that preceded the announcement of luncheon, the party settled themselves on elaborate chairs in the drawing-room, Humphreys, for his part, perspiring quietly in the consciousness that stock was being taken of him. "'I was just saying to Mr. Humphreys, my dear,' said Mr. Cooper, "'that I hope and trust that his residence among us here in Willsthorpe will be marked as a red-letter day.' "'Yes, indeed, I'm sure,' said Mrs. Cooper heartily, "'and many, many of them.' Miss Cooper murmured words to the same effect, and Humphreys attempted a pleasantry about painting the whole calendar red, which, though greeted with shrill laughter, was evidently not fully understood. At this point they proceeded to luncheon. "'Do you know this part of the country at all, Mr. Humphreys?' said Mrs. Cooper, after a short interval. This was a better opening. "'No, I'm sorry to say I do not,' said Humphreys. It seems very pleasant, what I could see of it coming down in the train. Oh, it is a pleasant part. Really, I sometimes say I don't know a nicer district for the country, and the people round, too. Such a quantity always going on. But I'm afraid you've come a little late for some of the better garden parties, Mr. Humphreys. I suppose I have. Dear me, what a pity, said Humphreys, with a gleam of relief. And then, feeling that something more could be got out of this topic, but after all, you see, Mrs. Cooper, even if I could have been here earlier, I should have been cut off from them, should I not? My poor uncle's recent death, you know. Oh, dear, Mr. Humphreys, to be sure, what a dreadful thing of me to say! And Mr. and Miss Cooper seconded the proposition inarticulately. What must you have thought? I am sorry. You must really forgive me. Not at all, Mrs. Cooper, I assure you. I can't honestly assert that my uncle's death was a great grief to me, for I had never seen him. All I meant was that I supposed I shouldn't be expected to take part for some little time in festivities of that kind. Now, really, it's very kind of you to take it in that way, Mr. Humphreys, isn't it, George? And you do forgive me. But only fancy, you never saw poor old Mr. Wilson. Never in my life, nor did I ever have a letter from him. But, by the way, you have something to forgive me for. I've never thanked you, except by letter, for all the trouble you've taken to find people to look after me at the hall. Oh, I'm sure that was nothing, Mr. Humphreys, but I really do think that you'll find them give satisfaction. The man and his wife, whom we've got for the butler and housekeeper, we've known for a number of years. Such a nice, respectable couple. And Mr. Cooper, I'm sure, can answer for the men in the stables and the gardens. Yes, Mr. Humphreys, they're a good lot. The head gardener's the only one who's stopped on from Mr. Wilson's time. The major part of the employees, as you no doubt saw by the will, received legacies from the old gentleman and retired from their posts. And as the wife says, your housekeeper and butler are calculated to render you every satisfaction. So everything, Mr. Humphreys, is ready for you to step in this very day, according to what I understood you to wish, said Mrs. Cooper. "'Everything, that is, except company, and there I'm afraid you'll find yourself quite at a standstill. "'Only we did understand it was your intention to move in at once. "'If not, I'm sure you know we should have been only too pleased for you to stay here.' 
I'm quite sure you would, Mrs. Cooper, and I'm very grateful to you. But I thought I had really better make the plunge at once. I'm accustomed to living alone, and there will be quite enough to occupy my evenings, looking over papers and books and so on, for some time to come. I thought if Mr. Cooper could spare the time this afternoon to go over the house and grounds with me. Certainly, certainly, Mr. Humphreys. My time is your own, up to any hour you please. Till dinner-time, father, you mean? said Miss Cooper. Don't forget we're going over to the Bresnets. And have you got all the garden keys? Are you a great gardener, Miss Cooper? said Mr. Humphreys. I wish you would tell me what I am to expect at the hall. Oh, I don't know about a great gardener, Mr. Humphreys. I'm very fond of flowers, but the whole garden might be made quite lovely, I often say. It's very old-fashioned as it is, and a great deal of shrubbery. There's an old temple besides, and a maze. Really? Have you explored it ever? No, said Miss Cooper, drawing in her lips and shaking her head. I've often longed to try, but old Mr. Wilson always kept it locked. He wouldn't even let Lady Wardrop into it. She lives near here at Bentley, you know, and she's a great gardener, if you like. That's why I asked father if he had all the keys. I see. Well, I must evidently look into that, and show you over it when I've learnt the way. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Humphreys. Now I shall have the laugh of Miss Foster. That's our rector's daughter, you know. They're away on their holiday now. Such nice people. We always had a joke between us. Which should be the first to get into the maze? I think the garden keys must be up at the house, said Mr. Cooper, who had been looking over a large bunch. There is a number there in the library. Now, Mr. Humphreys, if you're prepared, we might bid good-bye to these ladies, and set forward on our little tour of exploration. As they came out of Mr. Cooper's front gate, Humphreys had to run the gauntlet not of an organised demonstration, but of a good deal of touching of hats and careful contemplation from the men and women who had gathered, in somewhat unusual numbers, in the village street. He had further to exchange some remarks with the wife of the lodge-keeper as they passed the park gates, and with the lodge-keeper himself, who was attending to the park road. I cannot, however, spare the time to report the progress fully. As they traversed the half-mile or so between the lodge and the house, Humphreys took occasion to ask his companion some question which brought up the topic of his late uncle, and it did not take long before Mr. Cooper was embarked upon a disquisition. "'It is singular to think, as the wife was saying just now, that you should never have seen the old gentleman. And yet you won't misunderstand me, Mr. Humphreys, I feel confident.' when I say that, in my opinion, there would have been but little congeniality betwixt yourself and him. Not that I have a word to say in deprecation, not a single word. I can tell you what he was, said Mr. Cooper, pulling up suddenly, and fixing Humphreys with his eye, can tell you what he was in a nutshell, as the saying goes. He was a complete, thorough, valentudinarian. That describes him to a T. That's what he was, sir, a complete valentudinarian. No participation in what went on around him. I did venture, I think, to send you a few words of cutting from our local paper, which I took the occasion to contribute on his decease. If I recollect myself aright, such is very much the gist of them. But don't, Mr. Humphreys, 
continued Cooper, tapping him impressively on the chest. "'Don't you run away with the impression that I wish to say aught but what is most creditable, most creditable, of your respected uncle and my late employer. Upright, Mr. Humphreys, open as the day. Liberal to all in his dealings. He had the heart to feel and the hands to accommodate. But there it was. There was the stumbling-block, his unfortunate health, or, as I might more truly phrase it, his want of health. Yes, poor man. Did he suffer from any special disorder before his last illness? Which I take it was little more than old age. Just that, Mr. Humphreys, just that. The flash flickering slowly away in the pan, said Mr. Cooper, with what he considered an appropriate gesture. The golden bowl, gradually ceasing to vibrate. But as to your other question, I should return a negative answer. General absence of vitality? Yes. Special complaint? No. Unless you reckon a nasty cough he had with him. Why, here we are, pretty much at the house. A handsome mansion, Mr. Humphreys, don't you consider? It deserved the epithet on the whole, but it was oddly proportioned. A very tall red-brick house, with a plain parapet concealing the roof almost entirely. It gave the impression of a town-house set down in the country. There was a basement, and a rather imposing flight of steps leading up to the front door. It seemed also, owing to its height, to desiderate wings, but there were none. The stables and other offices were concealed by trees. Humphreys guessed its probable date as 1770 or thereabouts. The mature couple, who had been engaged to act as butler and cook-housekeeper, were waiting inside the front door, and opened it as their new master approached. Their name, Humphreys already knew, was Calton. Of their appearance and manner he formed a favourable impression in the few minutes' talk he had with them. It was agreed that he should go through the plate and the cellar next day with Mr. Calton, and that Mrs. C. should have a talk with him about linen, bedding, and so on, what there was and what there ought to be. Then he and Cooper, dismissing the Caltons for the present, began their view of the house. Its topography is not of importance to this story. The large rooms on the ground floor were satisfactory, especially the library, which was as large as the dining-room, and had three tall windows facing east. The bedroom prepared for Humphreys was immediately above it. There were many pleasant, and a few really interesting, old pictures. None of the furniture was new, and hardly any of the books were later than the seventies. After hearing of, and seeing, the few changes his uncle had made in the house, and contemplating a shiny portrait of him which adorned the drawing-room, Humphreys was forced to agree with Cooper that in all probability there would have been little to attract him in his predecessor. It made him rather sad that he could not be sorry, dolebat se dolere non posse, reader's note, the Latin phrase is translation of the phrase before, sad that he could not be sorry, end of reader's note. It made him rather sad that he could not be sorry for the man who, whether with or without some feeling of kindliness towards his unknown nephew, had contributed so much to his well-being, for he felt that Willsthorpe was a place in which he could be happy, and especially happy, it might be, in its library. And now it was time to go over the garden. 
the empty stables could wait, and so could the laundry. So to the garden they addressed themselves. And it was soon evident that Miss Cooper had been right in thinking that there were possibilities. Also, that Mr. Cooper had done well in keeping on the gardener. The deceased Mr. Wilson might not have, indeed plainly had not, been imbued with the latest views on gardening, but whatever had been done here had been done under the eye of a knowledgeable man, and the equipment and stock were excellent. Cooper was delighted with the pleasure Humphreys showed, and with the suggestions he let fall from time to time. "'I can see,' he said, "'that you've found your meteor here, Mr. Humphreys. You'll make this place a regular cynosia before very many seasons have passed over our heads. I wish Clutterham had been here. That's the head gardener, and here he would have been, of course, as I told you, but for his son's being horsed over with a fever, poor fellow. I should like him to have heard how the place strikes you. Yes, you told me he couldn't be here today, and I was very sorry to hear the reason, but it will be time enough tomorrow. What is that white building on the mound at the end of the grass ride? Is it the temple Miss Cooper mentioned? That it is, Mr. Humphreys, the temple of friendship, constructed of marble, brought out of Italy for the purpose, by your late uncle's grandfather. Would it interest you, perhaps, to take a turn there? You get a very sweet prospect of the park. The general lines of the temple were those of the Sibyl's temple at Tivoli, helped out by a dome. Only the whole was a good deal smaller. Some ancient sepulchral reliefs were built into the wall, and about it all was a pleasant flavour of the grand tour. Cooper produced the key, and with some difficulty opened the heavy door. Inside there was a handsome ceiling, but little furniture. Most of the floor was occupied by a pile of thick circular blocks of stone, each of which had a single letter, deeply cut on its slightly convex upper surface. "'What is the meaning of these?' Humphreys inquired. "'Meaning? Well, all things, we are told, have their purpose, Mr. Humphreys, and I suppose these blocks have had theirs as well as another. But what that purpose is or was—' Mr. Cooper assumed a didactic attitude here. I, for one, should be at a loss to point out to you, sir. All I know of them, and it's summed up in a very few words, is just this, that they are stated to have been removed by your late uncle, at a period before I entered on the scene, from the maze. That, Mr. Humphreys, is— Oh, the maze! exclaimed Humphreys. I'd forgotten that. We must have a look at it. Where is it? Cooper drew him to the door of the temple and pointed with his stick. "'Guide your eye,' he said, somewhat in the manner of the second elder in Handel's Susanna. "'Far to the west direct your straining eyes, where yon tall holm-tree rises to the skies.' "'Guide your eye by my stick here, and follow out the line directly opposite to the spot where we're standing now.' and I'll engage, Mr. Humphreys, that you'll catch the archway over the entrance. You'll see it just at the end of the walk, answering to the one that leads up to this very building. Did you think of going there at once? Because if that be the case, I must go to the house and procure the key. If you would walk on there, I'll rejoin you in a few moments' time. Accordingly, Humphreys strolled down the ride leading to the temple, past the garden front of the house, 
and up the turfy approach to the archway which Cooper had pointed out to him. He was surprised to find that the whole maze was surrounded by a high wall, and that the archway was provided with a padlocked iron gate. But then he remembered that Miss Cooper had spoken of his uncle's objection to letting anyone enter this part of the garden. He was now at the gate, and still Cooper came not. For a few minutes he occupied himself in reading the motto cut over the entrance, Secretum meum mihi et filiis domus mie, and in trying to recollect the source of it. Reader's note. The Latin translates to, My secret is for me and the sons of my house. End of reader's note. Then he became impatient, and considered the possibility of scaling the wall. This was clearly not worth while. It might have been done if he had been wearing an older suit. Or could the padlock, a very old one, be forced? No, apparently not. And yet, as he gave a final irritated kick at the gate, something gave way, and the lock fell at his feet. He pushed the gate open, inconveniencing a number of nettles as he did so, and stepped into the enclosure. It was a yew-maze, of circular form, and the hedges, long untrimmed, had grown out and upwards to a most unorthodox breadth and height. The walks, too, were next door to impassable. Only by entirely disregarding scratches, nettle-stings, and wet could Humphreys force his way along them, but at any rate this condition of things, he reflected, would make it easier for him to find his way out again, for he left a very visible track. So far as he could remember, he had never been in a maze before, nor did it seem to him now that he had missed much. The dankness and darkness, and smell of crushed goose-grass and nettles, were anything but cheerful. Still, it did not seem to be a very intricate specimen of its kind. Here he was. By the way, was that Cooper arrived at last? No. Very nearly at the heart of it, without having taken much thought as to what path he was following. Ah, there at last was the centre, easily gained. And there was something to reward him. His first impression was that the central ornament was a sundial, but when he had switched away some portion of the thick growth of brambles and bindweed that had formed over it, he saw that it was a less ordinary decoration, a stone column about four feet high, and on the top of it a metal globe, copper to judge by the green patina, engraved and finely engraved too, with figures in outline and letters. That was what Humphreys saw and a brief glance at the figures convinced him that it was one of those mysterious things called celestial globes, from which, one would suppose, no one ever yet derived any information about the heavens. However, it was too dark, at least in the maze, for him to examine this curiosity at all closely, and besides he now heard Cooper's voice, and sounds as of an elephant in the jungle. Humphreys called to him to follow the track he had beaten out and soon Cooper emerged, panting, into the central circle. He was full of apologies for his delay. He had not been able, after all, to find the key. "'But there,' he said, "'you've penetrated into the heart of the mystery, unaided and unannealed, as the saying goes. Well, I suppose it's a matter of thirty to forty years since any human foot has trod these precincts. Certain it is that I've never set foot in them before.' 
Well, well, what's the old proverb about angels fearing to tread? It's proved true once again in this case. Humphrey's acquaintance with Cooper, though it had been short, was sufficient to assure him that there was no guile in this allusion, and he forbore the obvious remark, merely suggesting that it was fully time to get back to the house for a late cup of tea, and to release Cooper for his evening engagement. They left the maze accordingly, experiencing well-nigh the same ease in retracing their path as they had in coming in. "'Have you any idea?' Humphreys asked as they went towards the house. "'Why my uncle kept that place so carefully locked?' Cooper pulled up, and Humphreys felt he must be on the brink of a revelation. "'I should merely be deceiving you, Mr. Humphreys, and that to no good purpose, if I laid claim to possess any information whatsoever on that topic. When I first entered upon my duties here, some eighteen years back, that maze was word for word in the condition you see it now, and the one and only occasion on which the question ever arose within my knowledge was that of which my girl made mention in your hearing. Lady Wardrop, I've not a word to say against her, wrote, applying for admission to the maze, your uncle showed me the note, a most civil note, everything that could be expected from such a quarter. Cooper, he said, I wish you'd reply to that note on my behalf. Certainly, Mr. Wilson, I said, for I was quite inured to acting as his secretary. What answer shall I return to it? Well, he said, give Lady Wardrop my compliments, and tell her that if ever that portion of the grounds is taken in hand, I shall be happy to give her the first opportunity of viewing it, but that it has been shut up now for a number of years, and I shall be grateful to her if she kindly won't press the matter. That, Mr. Humphreys, was your good uncle's last word on the subject, and I don't think I can add anything to it. Unless, added Cooper, after a pause, it might be just this, that, so far as I could form a judgment, he had a dislike as people often will for one reason or another, to the memory of his grandfather, who, as I mentioned to you, had that maze laid out. A man of peculiar teenets, Mr. Humphreys, and a great traveller. You'll have the opportunity on the coming Sabbath of seeing the tablet to him in our little parish church. Put up it was some long time after his death. Oh, I should have expected a man who had such a taste for building to have designed a mausoleum for himself. Well, I've never noticed anything of the kind you mention, and, in fact, come to think of it, I'm not at all sure that his resting place is within our boundaries at all. That he lays in the vaults, I'm pretty confident, is not the case. Curious now that I shouldn't be in a position to inform you on that heading. Still, after all, we can't say, can we, Mr. Humphreys, that it's a point of crucial importance where the poor mortal coils are bestowed. At this point they entered the house, and Cooper's speculations were interrupted. Tea was laid in the library, where Mr. Cooper fell upon subjects appropriate to the scene. A fine collection of books, one of the finest I've understood from connoisseurs in this part of the country. Splendid plates, too, in some of these works. I recollect your uncle showing me one with views of foreign towns. Most absorbing it was got up in first-rate style, and another all done by hand, with the ink as fresh as if it had been laid on yesterday, and yet he told me it was the work 
of some old monk hundreds of years back. I've always taken a keen interest in literature myself. Hardly anything to my mind can compare with a good hour's reading after a hard day's work. Far better than wasting the whole evening at a friend's house. And that reminds me, to be sure, I shall be getting into trouble with the wife if I don't make the best of my way home, and get ready to squander away one of these same evenings. I must be off, Mr. Humphreys. And that reminds me, said Humphreys. If I'm to show Miss Cooper the maze to-morrow, we must have it cleared out a bit. Could you say a word about that to the proper person? Why, to be sure, a couple of men with scythes could cut out a track to-morrow morning. I'll leave word as I pass the lodge, and I'll tell them what'll save you the trouble, perhaps, Mr. Humphreys, of having to go up and extract them yourself, that they'd better have some sticks or a tape to mark out their way with as they go on. A very good idea. Yes, do that. And I'll expect Mrs. and Miss Cooper in the afternoon, and yourself about half-past ten in the morning. It'll be a pleasure, I'm sure, both to them and to myself, Mr. Humphreys. Good night. The end of part one of Mr. Humphreys and His Inheritance in Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M. R. James